Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Star would always say a pleasant good afternoon or a pleasant evening to our listeners, depending on uh, where you are and listening tonight. I'm your host, Chris Davy. Uh, Rob Star is off tonight. He's not with us. He's taking care of some very, very important business. But Rob will be next. Uh, we'll be here again next week. Uh, so we wish Rob well today. And for all of our listeners, we do have the very respectable uh, Chris Austin with us again tonight with California Water News. Chris Austin, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing? Yeah, it's splendid, man. We're waiting to see what's going to happen here next week, Chris, because um, it's all over the news that uh, we might be back in a wet weather pattern on the West Coast and a little more rain coming in. But I got to tell you the story. I've been watching this news develop over the last, what is, 48 hours, maybe two and a half days. And every time I look at the little chart where it tells you what the, what the rain percentage is for the, for, you know, starting early next week, midweek, uh-huh. next week, every time I look at those little percentage charts, they go down 10%. So uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, what, I think we're trying to be really super optimistic, but uh, yeah, I, you know, don't, it's not looking too definite. And if it comes in, it's uh, not going to, we're not going back to what it was like we had in January. There's nothing big on the horizon. So uh, we'll see, uh, you know, even cooler weather is, is helpful. We had a day here a couple days ago. Now, Remind right. the listeners, I live in between the state's two largest reservoirs, and at the base of the mountains where that's holding the snow. Um, and we had a day that was 74 degrees down here. So, uh, you know, warm days are, are they're nice, you know. We, we certainly enjoyed the mild day, but uh, days like that are also, you know, warm in the mountains, and that just makes that snow pass just melt a little bit faster so uh you know so it's cold weather a little more snow is good good um if you looked at the chart uh the um uh the big badass snow snowpack that we had oh, excuse me uh is no longer so so big uh it's really trending towards uh oh my cat's coming in to talk about the snowpack too um <laughs> to talk about <laughs> talk about the PBSAA, the big, badass snowpack. Yeah. Are we allowed to say that on the radio? Oh, yeah. On radio, oh. yeah, we're good. Okay, good, good. So it's just it's getting a little a little less badass. It's really trending towards um, uh, average, actually. It's pushing towards, like, the, the level. I mean, if, if we don't get any more... Uh, snow in the next couple weeks or next couple months this we're going to have a it's going to be an average year or maybe even a little less than average year so uh you know fingers crossed but uh i think they're always very optimistic especially up here in the north state but uh we'll see how that all shakes out um it's interesting go ahead I was going to say, it's interesting, we had uh, George Skelton in the L.A. Times write a commentary that 
you guys have all this snow, you need to stop saying that we're in a drought, which is a rather premature thing to say, because as I've been saying all along, it's really what's there on April 1st, and we haven't even gotten, you know, we still have two and a half months to go, so... Yeah, I saw that. The drought's over comment as it was, right? So, yeah. What? Wait, what? Wait a minute, man. Back up, back up that boat, buddy. <laughs> and, you know, even if we, even if we do have a really good snowpack and we end on April 1st, uh, that doesn't mean that we're in a drought. It does, if that we're not, no longer in a drought. Maybe we're not in a meteorological meteorological drought (laughs) that kind of drought Uh, but certainly in terms of our water supply uh, we would have had three dry years and we've really hit the groundwater basin hard and the groundwater is not recovered at all so to kind of you know look at uh, a snowpack as as us being out of drought (coughs) excuse me Um, if you were out of work for three years and then you had four really good months. Uh, are you back to normal? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. But if you look, you know, we'll we'll take a normal year, though, Chris. Right? I mean, you know, it, it, oh. even even after several drought years, a normal year is not something to scoff at. Oh no, we're we're quite happy with the normal year, um, and and that's great. But we should never, we, we don't, we should not be thinking that we're all back to normal. And, yeah, and it's not, actually, yeah. yeah, it's actually interesting. Uh, earlier this week, Governor Newsom, Governor Newsom put out an executive order where he did a couple things. Um, one of those things he did is try to make some uh, moves to make uh, groundwater recharge projects easier. Because although we did have some success with uh, getting some of that bountiful rain into our groundwater basins, uh, we you know we can do better. And so he's trying to make some moves to make that happen. And he also um, uh, uh, relaxed some of the standards, the water quality standards in the delta. Now, for our listeners, just a little reminder, the Delta is sort of the central hub of California's water system, and it's where water from Northern California, where the water, the precipitation falls, uh, transfers over and heads south to the parts of the state that don't get that much rainfall, Southern California, San Joaquin Valley, the Bay Area, and so on. Excuse me. Um, so he set up to, to relax the standards. Now, the problem with the Delta is the Delta is connected to the ocean in San Francisco Bay. So twice a day, we have tides pushing into the Delta, salty water into the Delta that we have to, you know, they have to release water from the reservoirs to keep the salt out of the Delta. <laughs> Excuse me. My, uh, I have a bit of a cold. And so, yeah, so they they have to release water from the reservoirs, keep the salt water out of the delta. It's important to do that because you can't water crops with uh, salt water. And if salt gets into the delta, then it could get into the aqueduct and, and you can't use salty water for drinking water either. So keeping the delta fresh is important. 
but it takes uh, fresh water release from the reservoir. So in order to preserve the water that we have in the reservoir, uh, he has an executive order to relax some of those standards. And this is something that uh, is really a, a difficult situation. Because here's the thing, when many years ago, when they were hammering out this water quality control plan and the objectives, they all, you know, the environmentalists and the water agencies, everybody sat down and they came up with a plan of what to do in these different year types. So in a critically dry year, we, you know, we will do X. And, you know, and, and there's like five different year types. So they, they come up with these standards. And then when we get in a drought or something, then the first thing that happens is the Department of Water Resources and the Bureau of Reclamation go to the state water board and they say, we need you to relax the standards. So the environmentalists say, why why we already had a plan why are you changing the plan now you know it's like now is when you have to make those painful decisions but you agreed you were going to do that when we did these negotiations right and then the state says that yes we said that but this drought that we're experiencing is deeper and farther off the records than we ever thought we'd get we are in very unusual times. We've never seen conditions like this. We never anticipated uh, conditions like this. We need to do something. So how do you solve that? It's, it's, it's really difficult because, you know, they're both sides. There's truth in both sides. Um, and, you know, so how, how do you... How do you reconcile it? Well, we're, we're going to do it like we always do. We're going to probably do it through the court. You know, that's the only the only way to go. And one of the things, you know, that it that is particular concerning to the environmentalists this time around is that this is not even a critically dry year. I mean, we're probably uh, if we don't get any more snow, we're likely to end as kind of an average year. Okay, so. They're asking to weaken the standards in a year that isn't even critically dry. Yeah, yeah. So, right. you know, again, they're like, uh, you know, and for the thing is when, you know, we have dams on all of these rivers and we control the water in. So when the drought comes, you know, the environment and everything takes a hit because there's just not a lot of water going around. And then when we get a wet year like we did, it doesn't translate into a wet year for the environment because we're holding back the water to fill up the reservoir. So while our reservoirs are getting a nice refill on this wet year, the environment and the water that goes through the delta will still be as if it were a dry year. So, you know, it's these are just really thorny, thorny issues. And it's why if you're a water lawyer in California, you do pretty well. And, you know, water lawyers in California, there aren't they they aren't ambulance chasers. They, They aren't drumming up business. The problem is that we have laws and regulations that are written in 
vaguely and we have very real conflict you know that need to be resolved uh you know so it's it's just it's what makes california water so interesting and and interesting it is i mean you know we got to realize newsom's already signed this order right oh yeah keeping stuff like keeping the the salt and the fresh balance in the delta managed and stuff like that it, it only happens Chris, as you were saying, uh, and, and just re- re- repeating, really, it's a, it's just because of trade-offs, and that's that's what it presents, right? Just a bunch of trade-offs, and everybody gets together and and makes their point and votes and goes to court, and we see what happens. Yeah, we'll we'll see. It, it's it's really hard because you know these trade-offs are are there. They have real consequences. I mean, there's real consequences to starving your your you know, rivers and streams with water, with no water in a wet year, there's con- or in a dry year or whatever, there's consequences to the species. There's consequences when you don't, you can't deliver a lot of water to farmers. Uh, a lo- that really hurts a lot of farmers economically. It's, you know, it's sort of like if you say to a painter, well, you know, you can keep painting, but you just can't use paint. You know, it's like, well, what do you do? I mean, water's the basic input. They don't have water, they can't earn an income. And that's, that's a real issue. You know, it's a real issue when there isn't water for the cities. People yeah. lose landscaping. You know, they can't yeah. water outdoors. Trees die. Uh, people pay a lot of money to put in landscapes that they have to watch, you know, bake in the heat. Uh, so it's, it's all really, really tough. I mean that's really the big issue about California water is is you know dividing up that water between the environment and the farms and the cities and we're always struggling with that. Yeah, you know any any one of our regular listeners or even somebody who's just listened to the show once or twice is quite well aware from our discuss, discussions how the state of California still faces a ton of water challenges on, on many, many fronts, right? Not just surface water and groundwater. Oh, yeah. But usable water, stormwater, groundwater, um, treatment, all, you know, all that kind of stuff. And every every time one of these one of these issues comes up, large or small, Chris, it has so many ramifications, in, especially in the state of California, because of how widespread, how divisionalized, uh, and how fragile the California water system is. Yeah, it is. And one of the problems that we have here, I think, all throughout the West, but especially in California, is we have uh, legal constructs that were put in place in the late 1800s, early 1900s in terms of water and and who gets it and who appropriates it. And these old rules are are coming around and I, I think we're finding them increasingly uh, hard to enforce. And another one of those sort of old things, although not so old, is, uh, you know, what's going on at, at Mono Lake. Uh, oh, yeah, Mono, Mono Lake. Yeah, yeah Mono Lake, a, a very famous, like, case, uh, I think, here, I think in 1994, the State Water Board uh, said that uh, they had uh, that the LADWP had to stop drawing so much water from the Mono Basin uh, so that Mono Lake's level could rise again. Um, and 
they said it was a public trust issue, and they set a level that the lake needed to rise to, and then they would be able to revisit LADWP's uh, ability to draw water from Mono Lake. Now, LADWP could not, it wasn't that they had to stop completely taking water from the basin, but they had to cut back significantly. And as the lake would get, if the lake got better, then they would get to take more. If the lake continued to decline, then they would have to take less. And if it got to a certain point, then they would have to have a hearing to, to discuss that. Oh, I know. And my cat's very upset about Mono Lake. Um, <laughs> so, um, as well yeah as well so but so so as it turned out uh the lake is nowhere near the level that back in 1994 they said that the lake needed to be so uh they called for a hearing at the state water board and so they had that that or not it wasn't a hearing they had a workshop yesterday which is where they kind of get people to talk about it um and so yeah you know la resources control board yes yes and yeah. ladwp says hey look you know the the lake is actually two feet higher than it was you know a few months ago and it's getting better and uh <laughs> and the people at mono lake uh they, mono lake has a very dedicated group of people uh that are out there fighting for it mono lake's important it's it's kind of a this salty lake it's a it's uh owens lake similar to owens lake but it still has water in it owens lake was uh was drained for ella for you know ladwp aqueduct into la but mono right. lake a little bit higher up still has water um and it's a it's a big bird spot like if you were to go up there sure. this time of year you'd see all kinds of birds there and there's like any there's birds there all year round though, but I guess this is the time of year, you know, it's in the spring where it gets a lot of birds, uh, very important migratory birds. Also, they have an island out there uh, that is usually surrounded by water, and it's where a lot of gulls, uh, seagulls, nest at. Um, it's kind of where they nest and go forward. I always I, I hesitate to point that out because, you know, if, if you've ever gone to the beach down in L, in L.A. and on Southern California and you have the seagulls that come and, and try and rip off your food, you know, yeah. they're, they're not exactly the most sympathetic birds, I guess, if you've been to the beach and you've had to fight seagulls off from you. And, and boy, they're bold, too, I'll tell yeah. you. But, uh, but yeah, a, a lot of them are nesting up there in Mono Lake. And nonetheless, you know, they're creatures, and, and we like to have our critters on this planet. So um, it is an important lake. And when it dries up, you know, and this is the problem that, we, that we're going to have with all kinds of inland lakes. Uh, these are lakes that don't have an outlet to the ocean or anywhere, and they tend to turn salty. Uh, slightly salty so it's not just mono lake or owens lake it's the great salt lake um and utah's having this same problem it's drying up the salt and sea what happens when these waters recede is you have this ch 
chalky dust. And then the wind comes and the wind blows up this dust. And it can be like your worst air quality nightmare. I mean, the the yeah. uh, dust storms they used to have at Owens Lake, uh, they on days when those winds were roaring, uh, the worst air quality in the entire country would be at Owens Lake. This is what this is what caused uh, you know the powers that be, the State Lands Commission or State Water Board. I'm not sure who that ordered LADWP to do dust control on Owens Lake. Uh, and the same thing ha- can happen up at Mona Lake when the when the waters recede. Uh, and it's a problem with the Salt Sea and the Great Salt Lake too. Um, you know the dust storms. That's thing, you know yeah. big big concern. Yeah, I should mention also the huge brine shrimp population that's in Mona Lake, which attracts a lot of the birds there, including including the seagulls. Uh, even though you know Mono Lake is is a couple of hundred miles inland, not mm-hmm. by the sea at all, but it's a salty lake. But you have seagulls there. I guess you could call them lake gulls. Or you know the the impervious as if they fly over the bay bagel, uh, <laughs> that's confusing to everybody at breakfast. So, um, but there's you know there's the uniqueness of that lake is what attracts that wildlife that's there. And there's a ton even though it's kind of on the desert side or the uh, or the dry side of the Sierras, there's a ton of other wildlife around Mono Lake uh, as well that depend on it. And it's a, it's a really a fascinating place it's you know if you ever if, if the listeners if you ever have a chance to go there yeah. you know it's a great day to go and spend the day there they have uh they have like a visitor center and there's trails you can take uh and they have yeah. these things called tufas uh which are the stacks of yeah yeah there's stacks of of stones that actually used to be underwater uh and it's uh caused by i think calcium carbonate precipitating right. exactly out of the right. water spring yeah yep yeah springs that came up there and the calcium carbonate would solidify and create these two uh mounds now the water uh, level is lower those tufa mounds are exposed but there's a ton also of of endemic native and endemic plants all around the lake that you won't see in in other places um, other than mono lake um, but it, and it's a great, it's just a beautiful place to visit, just astounding vistas, a lot of volcanic uh, sites to see around there, um, just just a great place. But if listeners, if you get a chance, take Chris's advice and go to Mono Lake. Yeah, or anywhere along the Eastern Sierra, it's just, it's just gorgeous. And the best thing I think about the Eastern Sierra is it's, it's very uncrowded California. Uh, they're probably the lowest populations in those counties. So it's very rural and it's just absolutely breathtaking, beautiful, the Sierras and the lakes and everything that are there and lots of fun things to do if you're an outdoor person. Yeah. Camping and stuff like that. So, um, so just, you know, and the weather's generally very nice on the dry side of the Sierras as well. So you, you're pretty much guaranteed to get some, some good days while you're up there. Right, Chris? Oh, absolutely. So, well, what's gonna what's gonna happen if we don't get these storms come in, right? And even if we do get them come in, and even if they're great big, you know, gully 
washers and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the state's still kind of debating on what to do with the water that left, you know, that came in on the uh, first set of storms that we had late this, you know, through mid-December through mid-January. They're still yeah. fighting over that. Yeah, I know. So we, we're going to cross our fingers and, you know, hope that the skies get cloudy and gray and, you know, lots of snow and rain for us. Uh, you know, we, we must remain optimistic. We still got some time to go. I think we can remain optimistic. All right, Chris. Well, as always, great to have you on every single week. A lot of terrific insights uh, today for sure. For our listeners, guys, Go take a minute, just go right now to uh, mavensnotebook.com. Take a look. There's a ton of information available there. Chris does a terrific job. And Chris, tell us about a little couple little upgrades you've made to your to your website. Oh, we just I just worked with a graphic designer to sort of improve the look and make it easier to read and freshen it up. And so there's like, you know, it's, it's a whole new nice looking website. So go check it out. Yeah, absolutely. When you do, guys, take a look at that. It is uh, completely self-run by Chris, so subscribe when you go to the website. Sponsor uh, Maven's Notebook when you go there. All of the uh, tabs to click on are right there on the website. Again, uh, I know every single time that I go there, I see how great it is, and I think our listeners will see the same. Uh, Chris, I'm going to wish you a great uh, week. We're going to see you or hear you. As in, you know, We have faces for radio. We're going to see you <laughs> next week on the Water Zone, and uh, I wish you a terrific week coming up. All right. You too. Good evening, everyone. All right. Stay safe, Chris. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, listeners, uh, stay tuned, if you will, for the second half of the radio show. We've got a really good, a very uh, interesting uh, second half pre-recorded second half coming up from um, some colleagues of ours uh, in South Africa. Uh, Just a terrific one. So stay tuned, guys. Come right back with us after the uh, commercial break. We'll see you in a minute or two. You're on board KCAA's Inland Talk Express. KCAA, Loma Linda, 1050 AM, the station that leaves no listener behind. Moving up in this industry means getting the most out of each day, so you can focus on growing your business. With Site One, you're in control, and we're here to help. It starts with the right team. Our irrigation pros can help map out a complete, streamlined system to meet any requirements or regulation. And from the first dig to years after install, knowledgeable experts are available in branch, or resources are available online to help find solutions specific to your needs. Next, we make sure you have the right tools to get the job done with the largest selection of top brands in the industry, bringing the latest in Wi-Fi-enabled controllers, rotors, sprays, valves, and drip components. And because hard work should always be rewarded, you'll receive personalized pricing and earn loyalty points on qualifying purchases to help you grow. You're in control. Site One is here to help. Water is one of the biggest expenses for communities, HOAs, universities, golf courses, and resorts. So keeping those costs under control, especially when rates are increasing while water supplies are being reduced, are often essential to a customer's survival. Managing water requires multiple skills, which is why it's been complicated and difficult until now. 
AquaTrack brings multiple skills and technologies together to help large system users conserve outdoor water and improve the health of their landscapes. AquaTrack's professionals are certified landscape water managers and certified landscape irrigation auditors. The company offers audit services, upgrade advice, technical expertise, and water use monitoring. We already manage irrigation water for the largest homeowner associations in Arizona, and we're prepared to bring our knowledge and experience to help others, including landscapers and designers. Give us a call and hear how AquaTrack saved one HOA some 430 million gallons of water and $200,000 in annual water expenses. AquaTrack is Arizona-based, and you can reach us at 623-594-8689. That's 623-594-8689. Five nine four eight six eight nine. This is KCAA. Well, all right, everybody. Welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone. I'm your host, Chris Davy. For those of you who didn't hear in the first half or have just joined us, uh, Rob Starr is not with us this week. He's off taking care of some very important business, but. We have a great second half for you. We've got uh, an interview that we recorded uh, a little bit early with uh, our colleagues. It's very interesting. It's called Utilizing the Internet of Things, the IoT, to Manage Water in South Africa. I know you're going to like it. It's from Dr. Kevin Winter, a colleague of ours. He's a Ph.D. professor, uh, a lecturer from University of uh, Cape Town. He's uh, the head of the, uh, the chair there of the Environmental and Geographic uh, Sciences Division. And it's a conversation he had with a journalist named Michelle Constant. Hey, stay tuned, guys. I know you're going to like it. Here is Dr. Kevin Winter. Water is fundamentally a really important means by which we're going to establish our long-term development effectively in South Africa. That's a difficult message for people to take. But if you start to think about it philosophically and also practically, it hopefully starts to make sense. Um, Water is life. We've taken nature for granted in lots of ways. We think we can actually overcome nature in many ways, but you cannot do that with water. Once water becomes polluted and you can't revive that water any longer, it becomes a non-renewable resource. This is Dr. Kevin Winter. In other words, it's inevitable that if we continue to pollute, we won't have sufficient water on the earth and nature will be unable to turn that water into its hydrological cycle, this big water cycle that energizes the whole of the earth. Kevin is an academic who's constantly looking for tools and resources to manage and improve the quality of our water because water inspires him and he loves a challenge. And if we take our eye off that, I think we're going to find ourselves with unprecedented health issues and ecological collapse, not only from the drugs and pharmaceuticals and foreign objects that find their way into our water bodies, but what we've always known before is the accumulation of heavy metals and of high levels of nutrients that are finding their way into our rivers. Accumulatively, they are doing damage and we have to become more astute. Dr. Kevin Winter is a lead researcher in the Future Water Institute of the University of Cape Town. And he's at home in the Department of Environmental and Geographical Science. 
The Institute brings together experts from different disciplines like economics, humanities, health sciences and civil engineering so that they can tackle a problem from a range of viewpoints. We're dealing with huge problems, huge challenges which are both global and are also local and, and national problems and we're addressing as many of those as we can in the area of water and sanitation. We want to know how researchers like Kevin go about tackling a challenge like the pollution of our precious water bodies. We're asking new questions, as it were, and the issues that we're involved in drives new questions for us. They're very complex questions, and one discipline cannot solve any one of these questions. And one individual can't solve these questions either. So that collective is really important. Kevin's team works with something called IoT, the Internet of Things. Before we hear all about the fascinating research Kevin's team are involved in, let's understand what IoT is. We live in, in the information age. This is an age in which information is helping us to build our knowledge, build our understanding of circumstances that are often changing around us. And it comes at us in many different forms. Basically, the Internet of Things is the billions of global devices, phones and computers, or water monitoring sensors for that matter, that are connected to the Internet, all collecting and sharing data. We all use the Internet of Things. Sometimes we don't even realize we're using it. When we are looking at a website, for instance, on a model that is based on data that's been collected often in real time, and the weather is a good example of that. So many of us would follow the weather almost daily. We make decisions about what we're going to wear in the day based upon the weather. And it might be lots of other decisions we're making on the weather patterns that are before us. So predicting the weather is an IoT. And what's coming up to us is, in fact, models uh, that have their background in data capture. And that data capture is put before us in a dashboard or a graph or some kind of picture sometimes which helps us to understand what the weather is doing. That in effect is IoT. Since 2014, Kevin and his team have been using IoT to capture data that will help us understand and monitor the changes occurring across South Africa's water bodies. What we've done is to take those same principles of what you will see on the internet and put instruments uh, in our rivers, in our water bodies, in even water tanks, so that we can determine the height of that water, we can determine the quality of that water in more or less real time. And that information is captured by an instrument, first of all, by a sensor, which is a digital sensor, and it sends that data to a logger which essentially does the capture of that information, puts it into a transmission mode, so it communicates it across the internet, and we're able to read it on the back of our cell phones or onto the internet as we would do uh, any other internet site. So that's simply what it's doing. It's about the capture of that information that really is important and near real time, uh, especially in water, because it flows, it moves, and it changes its quality. But why is this important? From a research perspective, this is a growing area. The world is really focusing a lot of attention on pollutants and the monitoring, management and risk assessment that these pollutants are uh, delivering in our water bodies. So, for instance, we are working in the area of heavy metals that are finding their way into water bodies and precipitating, dropping from that water into the channel, into the body of water, to the wetlands or the rivers, ever that might be. 
These metals occur naturally, but also because of industrial pollution. And Kevin's work also includes monitoring the drugs and pharmaceuticals rapidly finding their way into our water systems. We know so little about them. They're very small uh, volumes at this stage or concentrations, but they could have long-term accumulative impacts. And the only way we're going to improve our understanding of risk is to improve our ability to monitor those waters and to use IoT as the warning signs of when those risks reach certain thresholds that require immediate action. They are crises. For me, water represents interesting interplay between a crisis in which we recognize we've got a problem and an ability to adapt in which we say we can make a decision and we need to invest in that decision in order to make a difference. In South Africa, the Department of Water and Sanitation monitors hundreds of data points or water sites across the country by taking monthly samples of water. But unlike IoT systems, this is not real-time data and cannot detect an immediate threat. Which is really important area that we are working in as well is trying to determine the flow of a river. And that's important because the volume that flows down that stream actually also has an impact on the concentration of pollutants that are in that stream. So if you get a high volume of water flowing for some time, you again will see that the pollution levels, the concentration of pollutants in that river are diluted. And again, the Internet of Things comes into play. One of the instruments that we've used to measure the height of the water is an ultrasonic sensor. And essentially what that does is it bounces a sound from the top, and the top in this case could be underneath a bridge. It's a very, very small sensor. It's about the size of a, a coin, a large a 50 cent coin, for instance, that is placed under the bridge with a little logger attached to it. And it bounces a sound every five seconds, in fact, down to the water level. And if we can measure the speed of that sound by the time it comes back up to the receiver, we can measure the height of the water. So a simple analogy, if that is not clear to you, well, it's like being on a tennis court and hitting a ball against the wall. If I hit with that tennis racket at the same speed and then start walking backwards and hit that ball back onto the wall, it's taking longer for that ball to reach the wall and come back at me. But what it's doing, if I had to measure that distance, I would be able to capture where I am standing away from the wall, the distance I'm standing away from the wall. And exactly the same thing applies here. When it rains, the water rises, and the distance between the sensor and the water is smaller. By measuring the height of the water, Kevin can work out the volume of water passing through. So I can work out what's called the wetted perimeter, and I can establish how much water is passing through every few minutes at that particular site. This process gives almost real-time data, which can sound alarm bells on an official's phone if water quality is compromised due to a leak, or spill or anything that has interfered with the water, raising pollution above tolerated levels. That's the only way we're going to deal with, I guess, sometimes deliberate perpetrators of the crime of polluting our rivers, or at least deal with some of the failures that occur very often across our wastewater treatment plants and in industry as well, and in release of water from informal settlements. So this is what monitoring means in an era of IoT. It provides the tools to improve data capture and data flow through real-time detection. The information it provides is increasingly vital as South Africa runs out of hydrological gauges. These gauges help measure water levels. 
Unfortunately, as budgets and perhaps also interest has started to wane, South Africa has fewer and fewer of these meters to rely on in order to know how much water the country has and how much might be captured. The rate of discharge, the volume that's coming down the river affects pollution. So too, it affects the way we should be managing our water. And a lot of our water, for instance, here in the city of Cape Town, finds its way into canals and just rushes out to sea. Uh, and during our day zero, a lot of people saying, look at all the water that when it does rain, it flows out to sea. We're in a water crisis, and yet we're not capturing that water. The Cape Town water crisis saw a period of three years of severe water shortages due to the prolonged drought in a region that borders the Indian and Atlantic Oceans. Day zero was the day when the city's taps would dry out and citizens would be restricted to collecting a daily quota of water. And of course it's difficult to know how to capture that water because if you don't know what the volume is and what the costs are of trying to manage that volume of water, it's very difficult for authorities to really react in any positive way other than to recognize there's a lot of water. And what are the risks of catching uh, water at very high volume, risks being maybe flooding? If you start to flood your wetlands and your floodplains, you may well add to the risks. And you need to know the actual figures to be able to make those kind of decisions. So that's the usefulness of knowing and giving real-time account of what happens when a storm occurs, what kind of volume of water is coming down, and how do you actually capture that volume and do something with it. And the numbers are the important thing here that drives the decision-making. With increasing droughts forecast and increasing demand for water from growing city populations, cities need to be able to make increasingly agile responses. And so IoT, I think, is a really useful way in sounding those alarm bells of understanding how those volumes are change, changing, how that water is being used in households, and to try and track the use of water with either in regions or parts of the city or even, and better still, in households so that we understand uh, how that water is being used and how to manage it more effectively. That's the role of IoT. The Future Water Institute has been involved in developing these IoT sensors since 2014. Working with new technology has had its share of challenges. One of the difficulties in using IoT, particularly in public open spaces, is that the moment we start to put these instruments up in public uh, areas, like next to rivers for instance, or under bridges, and we do our level best to try and hide them, is that there is a criminality here and so people find these little things interesting, break them apart, destroy them, sometimes even remove our data. So we have to spend a lot of our time thinking about the design of these instruments and how to hide them. Uh, we do all kinds of things. This is an example, for instance, is we sometimes hide them in vegetation or wrap vegetation around them. Even in some of our rivers that are really in atrocious condition, we hide plastics and other papers and things around it so that it looks like it's just part of the regular river environment or canal environment. Talk about facing a design challenge. And part of that design problem is trying to get power to a logger. They are power hungry, they require batteries and they require batteries that need to get recharged. The moment we put up solar panels, it's an instant giveaway. Uh, the secret is up and they can trace where that panel cord goes uh, to the actual logger itself. But the other big challenge is how to turn the data that the sensors collect into usable information. And that's where our younger generation of tech-savvy coders come in. 
What we've got to try and do is to make this technology, this IoT, really attractive to improve the decision making and to make it much more part and more central to everyday life, but also to the lives of officials who are reliant eventually on alarm bells, which help them to manage these systems and to interpret and to, to react to the information that comes their way. But how do we make IoT attractive? How does crowd science happen? So the first and big point about anything is releasing data. Don't let it sit on your desk or hide under your desk. Try and find ways and outlets to be able to release that data so that it's publicly available. The positive thing that happens when you release data of how much that begins to affect people's engagement with that particular problem and how you'll see perhaps greater buy-in from the private sector and from citizens who are really are caring about this but are often completely in the dark as to what is going on there. But if you hide the data, then we're in trouble and then we don't know what's going on. And then we see the accumulation of pollution and other uh, risks arise. IoT interventions can monitor wastewater treatment plants that often damage water supplies. Wastewater treatment plants have to monitor their water, they have to comply with regulations. So there is monitoring that goes on within a particular site. Sometimes there are incidents and there are plenty of wastewater treatment plants, um, more than 56% I'm told recently that are not compliant. We've seen how our rivers are turning green, our, our downstream ability to be able to use that water, in other words, farmers further downstream. Uh, there are high risks to them using that water. They can no longer irrigate safely. There are wetlands that are collapsing because of the pollution that is in those in that water. Increasingly, we're not able to use our recreational lakes and flares, for instance, for swimming, canoeing, sailing, whatever it might be. We're destroying the environment. So what if every household had an IoT water meter to manage its water use? I could walk into my maybe kitchen and see a digital meter that in tells me how that water is running in my household or how much I've used rather than maybe running out to an analog meter that sits somewhere in my yard or waiting for an account to come from the city of Cape Town and I have no idea what that water means. I, I'm paying amount every month for that water but I don't know how to manage that water effectively. That's IoT uh, for you because the meter is digital, digital sensor, and the logger sends that information out to uh, different parties uh, who are in agreement as to how that data might be used and used in managing the system better. Another person who believes design has an important role to play in solving our water issues is Shakira Jassad, designer and founder of Studio Sway. Cape Town's drought inspired her to look into the potential of the water that appears to be hidden from our sight. The role of design is really important because um, it allows you to explore. And I think as water needs space, we also need the space to explore before rushing into the next problem. I think we should really take the moment to understand what is happening around us because we are not the creators of the world. I think we are have to see ourselves as collaborators with other things around us to create the world. And so we don't have all the power Shakira observed how nature was behaving, its processes, and how she might mimic this. The Namib desert beetle in particular was really fascinating uh, for me through the research that I made with aquitecture because it's a self-sustaining organism. So this desert beetle is living in the desert and he's really designed to take care of his own water needs. And I found that so beautiful because 
he's this little creature, he or she, and, and just walking around the desert and there is no water. I mean, nothing around. And, and at the end of the day, when temperatures are changing and things are getting cooler, this beetle finds the fog and lifts, uh, lifts his back up to the fog. And he has these bumps on his back and the fog uh, moves through these bumps and gets cooler. So there's a temperature decrease. And as it gets cooled down, water vapor turns to water literally on his back and the drops then fall over his legs into his mouth. And he literally drinks in that way. And I thought this was so beautiful and so amazing that he's really a decentralized kind of water system within the desert. And so if our buildings could start to behave in that way, taking care of their own water needs and as much as each building needed, I think we would already get somewhere. Aquatecture is the design Shakira visioned, a panel that harvests rainwater and when integrated with technology, it can harvest moisture from the atmosphere. And so with aquatecture, I really wanted that. I wanted to decentralize the water coming into a building and also being used within a building, keep it really central to that building's needs and how it takes care of its own needs is through these panels. Like Shakira's, Kevin's interest in water runs far deeper than just science. It's driven by his love for nature. There's nothing better than being in a river system that is unpolluted. Go and stand next to it and, and you'll probably get the same excitement that I've had, uh, even as a child, of standing next to a flowing river um, and just being energized by the flow of water, by putting your hands in that water and just letting it flow through your fingers. And stop thinking about your own agenda and the things that you want to do. Stop for a moment and recognize the importance of that water flowing on that surface. Uh, it's an incredible cycle. It's rainfall. It's gone through the system. It's passing back through the system through evaporation, comes back onto the mountain, back into the catchments, back into the river. It's an incredible cycle. In South Africa's Western Cape, the Future Water Institute is using nature-based processes and IoT tech to address a really big challenge on a site called the Water Hub in Franschhoek. Franschhoek is a small town with centuries-old vineyards and Cape Dutch architecture. The runoff that comes from its informal settlements is the challenge here. And by runoff, we mean excess water that runs off the land's surface. And these informal settlements are releasing surface water because they're underserviced. Water's coming in and the sanitation systems generally are dysfunctional, particularly in the settlement just downstream of where our research site is situated. And in using IoT there, what we've done is measured the extent of the concentrations of pollution, for instance, during a rainfall event. We've taken real-time collection of that data, of that information, and we're able to show what happens, particularly after a series of 10 days of fairly dry, warm weather, and suddenly a shower occurs, a rain shower that is, it brings down pollutants uh, down in the river. It's peak pollution at that stage. In other words, it's what we sometimes call the first flush. And that first flush, I wouldn't say is necessarily lethal, but certainly I don't want to scare people in it, but that's when most of the contaminant finds its way into the river. And we've got to be aware of that, and we've got to find ways to actually buffer that, to capture that pollution before it comes down. But how can that be done? So on our research site, we use very large biofilters, which are essentially nature-based processes in dealing with poor water quality. 
we clean water that's between uh, anything between 50 and 100,000 liters of water every five to seven days. And we've got that water quality to a position where it was at one stage completely unacceptable. Uh, You couldn't use that water for anything other than to flush it down the streams and hope that nature would then take over and dilute that water and make it less, uh, less risky for anyone further downstream. So what happens to it once it has been cleaned? But we clean that water and we reuse it in various ways. We support a garden in a a food security centre. We're growing vegetables and the vegetables are are grown at an acceptable health um, uh, level. In other words, the irrigation water is acceptable for uh, irrigation purposes. But it also is water that supports uh, fish population in fish breeding. And we use IoT in a number of ways on the site. One is both to measure the height of the water so we know what volume of water is flowing through these large biofilters and then also we've got sensors on the soil so we know just how much to irrigate the soil so it'll give us a real-time measure of moisture uh, in the soil and then we've got gauges that we use in the fish breeding tanks uh, in order to determine temperature and pH and dissolved oxygen uh, which are critical to understanding uh, the environment in which fish uh, can breed. So there's practical examples and we're learning how to apply that in order to manage uh, in the, the water quality and also in supporting the fish population, freshwater fish. Not quite fish, but possibly mermaids with big blue hearts, Zandilen Lovu and Hanli Prince Lu have dedicated their lives to free diving our beautiful coastlines, getting to know the oceans under the surface. You have this one bit of breath that is your currency to life and you hold it out to the ocean and you let her open your eyes and show her her magic and all in this one bit of breath and it feels like eternity. All you need to do is equalize, which is something that I realized the other time we were diving and you hear nothing, like just for the first little bit. And then once you equalize, it's like this little secret language. And before you know it, you can hear everything, you know, the coral, the fish, the whales, just everything. There's a place where you explode. The ocean itself, when you dive down, is not a quiet place. It is a beautifully loud place. All right, everybody. Well, thank you for listening. Was, was that great? I mean, just to let you guys know, this, this, there's another a show that we've got coming up. So we're going to get that aquatecture subject a little bit more as we uh, as we go through uh, the rest of uh, the spring the spring shows here. So thanks for listening, everybody. As Rob and I say every year, uh, one thing we say, our motto is help keep our planet blue. Thanks for listening to The Water Zone, everybody. We'll be back next week. Have a great week, everyone. KCAA Loma Linda. Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM. NBC News Radio.